Hello, hello. Welcome to episode 82 of Herpetological Highlights. My name is Tom Major and co-hosting with me, as ever, main man Ben Marshall. And we're here to talk to you today about some pretty charismatic, quite large lizards. I think it would be fair to say they're the dogs of the lizard kingdom and they are the blue-tongued skinks. The dogs... In, in what way? What are, how are you comparing blue-tongued skink to dog? Um, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just wanting to tease out this logic. Um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to be questioned on it. I don't know. I think because they're quite big, mm-hmm. um, they're sort of close to Not quite to being... as big as a dog, though. No. they, And uh, we know they're quite clever, like a dog. Ah, do- dogs can be clever. It's quite doggish. And yep, yep. big tongue, like a dog. Yep, yep. Some dogs have tongues that are so big they don't stay in their mouths. Exactly. Smooth, scaly skin like a dog. <laughs> yep, yep. I've seen many a dog with, I suppose, not smooth skin, but certainly scaly skin. Yes. So you can see that, you know, I mean, I could go on. They are. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I think you've made a convincing argument for the way that blue tongue skinks are dogs of the lizard world. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. So, yeah, we're talking about the blue tongue skink, the classic blue tongue skink, Tiliqua skinkoides. It's a wide-ranging, as I've said, it's quite a large skink from Australia. There are actually three subspecies to the skink. We don't want to get too bogged down in subspecies. It's actually not too complicated, though. Um, Two of them are on the Australian mainland. Um, You've got the northern blue-tongued skink and the eastern blue-tongued skink. And then you've got... Yeah, and if you look at a map of their range in Australia, it literally is like the north and east of Australia. It's pretty easy. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, and then there's a third one who's kind of the spanner in the works, the sort of... The rogue one skink. Out. Yeah, the rogue skink. They actually are in um, Indonesia. So they're called the Tanambar blue tongue skink. And that's another one of the subspecies. Wow, I've never heard of them. That's no, cool. Yeah, yeah. I had a little Google. They look quite similar to the other blue tongues. I think they can be a bit more grey when they're adults. Uh-huh. Whereas the other ones are kind of more browny, brown bars. Tanambar yeah, ones. tan, tan, yeah. Yeah, Tanambar ones tend to have a sort of grey hue to them. Um, but yeah, very similar otherwise. And uh, yeah, this is a Patreon episode for Hedrigal. So big up Hedrigal. Thanks very much for supporting the podcast and as a result, choosing an episode. And yeah, uh, yeah, we got a couple of papers related to Blue Tongue Skinks that have come out quite recently, actually. It seems as though we've covered some other closely related skinks, um, Egernia and stuff, who are Mm. considered the other kind of skink intellectuals. And it's nice to come back to a couple of papers on... A little bit about blue tongue skink intellect and a little bit about well their blue tongues really yeah what would you what would you like to start with i although i said it in the opposite way around there i was expecting to start with the blue tongues i think we should start with the blue tongues that's yeah. fine by me yeah I... so we have a paper published in behavioral ecology and sociobiology in 2018 uh why blue tongue A potential UV-based, what even is that word? Dimatic? Yeah, they've swapped the E and the I around. Or the I and the E have swapped Uh, to an E and an I. I before E, except after D. Yeah. Dimatic display in a lizard. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, the word is uh, contrary to our very fluid language rules. Which are poorly, poorly followed <laughs> basically yeah. non-existent i'm with you though the word dimatic was new to me um it's quite a cool word though i do enjoy it now that i know it yeah authors wise we have 
Batian, Carrizo, Price Reese, Fernando, Bernal, and Whiting. Um, yeah, I, it, they have a name. These skinks, blue tongue skinks, but for what purpose? Surely it's not just coincidence that they have blue tongues. Surely that has purpose. Surely there is meaning behind the blue. Yeah, and, it uh, can't just be a coincidence that they've just got really blue tongues. Yeah, and and what's one of the other noticeable things about these skinks is they're rather. Uh, can't even think of an adequate word to describe it. Brazen, brave, like they they have a wonderful defensive show. Uh, a display to keep back predators or at least catch them off guard. The idea is to shock the prey with a, a sudden display of, of blue the predator. and their tongue. With their prey. Yeah, the bamboozle <laughs> prey with their tongue. Like some sort of weird... <laughs> yeah, no, predator. That's it. Anti-predator defense is what I was meant to be talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And that's, and the... that's what this, this dimatic display is... is what it is it's, it's a shock um shock tactic yeah surprise it is. whoa exactly the predators are not expecting to be faced with you know you see a delicious looking skink on the floor it's just meat it's all meat you think yep gonna munch on that before you know it you're going into approach and the thing flashes its blue tongue at you just as you're about to attack right so it's this re sort of reflex recoil like whoa okay let's reevaluate the situation quickly and the idea is that that instant this skink can make that it moment escape. of hesitation yeah that's all yeah. a skink needs it is it is that moment capitalize and they are quite fast actually if you see one panicked running through the undergrowth they can actually you know they can move quite a rate so well and it might not even be that they have to get that far right you know dodge into a burrow dodge into a under a spiky bush yeah exactly and in this paper they were Looking at northern blue tongue skinks, so that is Taliqua skinkoides intermedia, and yeah, as you've said, these skinks are under pre- predator predation. Uh, what? These skinks, super predator predation pressure. Yeah, yeah these yeah, skinks have yeah. got predators trying to eat them because although they're quite big lizards, they're not the biggest animal going. They're not apex predators by any stretch. And you've got birds, snakes, monitor lizards, and potentially even carnivorous marsupials such as the northern quoll predating on these lizards and all of these animals are thought to have uv vision so they can actually see wavelengths of light lower than the wavelengths we can perceive giving them access to a secret color ultraviolet oh that's the coolest type of violet it is without a doubt and the authors of these papers this paper were essentially looking to find out first of all how does the tongue look to these different predators? And they also did some trials to see what elicited the reaction of the tongue flash by the skinks themselves. And to do that, they did some predation trials. Yeah. So, I mean, this this is this is firmly over into your previous experience, right? Color vision stuff? Yeah, a little you bit. You know what you're talking about here. I recognized so- a lot of the papers they were citing, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So before before the trials, before they they presented these skinks with scary things to to see what they did. Uh, 
they wanted to get a handle on what predators would see. And there is, what's the right way of describing this? Uh, sort of, it's not, sim- is it simulating? Would simulating be the correct word? Simulating other animals' vision to sort of see what they would see, to see what wavelengths uh, are being reflected back. And you know yeah. what these these predators can potentially see, and if those sort of things match up, then you know, okay, predator would be able to see this, and it would be able to see it better than this predator, or worse than that predator. So yeah. you get this idea of what's being reflected and what predators are sensitive to, with the assumption that if they match up, then there might be something going on there. Yeah, yeah, precisely. That's exactly what they do. Yeah, so they have these models of predator vision, and then they have an ability to see all the wavelengths coming off something. In this case, they use the spectrometer. You can also do it with photography. Um, and yeah, the spectrometer will tell you where the wavelengths of light are and uh, um, the kind of uh, power of those at different wavelengths, which is the luminance. And yeah, you can overlay that on a map of the predator's vision and see precisely what the predator would see or understand. You'll never be able to see it or even comprehend it. You'd lose your mind immediately. But yes. you can you can Seeing tell colors that you you can't comprehend. You don't. It, it'd be too much. Yeah. And so yeah, what you get is a sort of nice little graph of the wavelengths coming off something, and you can, as you said, compare that to the wavelengths seen by a predator and work out, you know, who is this signal relevant for? Because it's not us. Well, exactly. I mean, it, it's unless it was us, unless the blues just as blue as it can be, and that's that. That's. I mean, should we just get into just follow on straight into results with the luminous yeah. thing, and then do the predator stuff second? Yeah. Um, I mean, it turns out is it is it isn't just blue. Uh, I feel okay. Blue tongue skinks. They got a blue tongue. It's pretty blue, but it's not like oh my, whoa! I'm getting blinded by blueness blue. Um. And what they did find is it had pretty high UV reflectance. Um, But not only that, it wasn't uniformly UV. So we had this situation where the front of the the tip of the tongue, less UV reflectance, but as you went further back, you know, as the tongue got sort of further back and wider, the UV luminance increased. So we had this sort of situation of this gradient from not very bright, all the way up to super bright, yeah. Yep. Bear that in mind as we head forward with the with the predation uh, depredation trials, because if you've got something that's varying over a surface, the suggestion is that they're probably using it in different ways. Totally. Because I mean, you've got to remember too that the tongue, certainly for reptiles, is used constantly for uh, smelling. I guess taste, you know, tasting. Breaking out that Jacobson's organ and uh, multi yeah. purpose, yeah? And skinks are definitely doing that. Blue tongue skinks, yeah. The tongue isn't just, um, I mean, obviously it has a role to play in the processing of food and eating, etc. But also, yeah, they flick it out and they get, get a sense of what's going on around them through their chemosensory abilities. So right, right, that right. speaks to what you've said about the, the variety of blueness on the tongue, because the front of the tongue, if that's being poked out and used all the time for other purposes beyond predation you don't necessarily want it to be extremely noticeable whereas if the back of the tongue is used in a threat display it might be handy to have it noticeable unless you're lingual luring or something along those lines yes but i don't think there's any evidence of that in in skinks no i don't i don't think that's really how they how they hunt anyway so irrelevant don't need (laughs) it you want to keep that luminance low so something doesn't spot your tongue for a mile away and think oh that's a tasty meal i'll scoop it up yeah. So that was the first thing they found, that the luminance 
yeah, the UV is more intense towards the back of the tongue, the bit that's used in the anti-predator defense display. And uh, yeah, then they also, alongside that, did the lizard predation trials, which I'm keen to talk about, as you can tell. I like... Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. name, name the competitors that these poor skinks had to face. <laughs> okay, so there was a number of competitors. Uh, a frozen western brown snake, Cedonia mengdenai. So that's a one meter long venomous snake, which would coexist with the skink. And as far as the skink's concerned, wouldn't be a frozen specimen, but a live specimen. Not alive and kicking, but alive and slithering. And so, yeah, that was one of the things thrust at the skinks. Uh, another thing was a bird. And the bird was a stuffed blue-winged kookaburra, Decello lychee for those of you interested in birds and there was also a monitor lizard which was a mounted yellow spotted monitor Varanus panoptes and finally they had a stuffed fox which is the only one of these which isn't a native predator for the um for the blue tongue skinks it's a introduced species but they do predate on them so they thought we'll give that a blend as well see how they react to that and as a control to see that they were actually uh, reacting to the presence of a predator rather than just the presence of something they also waved a big stick at them but i mean it's it's worth noting that you know a stick landing on a skink could also be quite scary yeah totally but but it, yeah 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 <laughs> i mean that's it Mo- moving <laughs> along the ground in the way they're doing it yeah that's yeah. a control yeah. if there was a log inexplicably inexplicably sort of poking at me i would be freaked out yeah but yeah so they had these different predators and they used them all in uh, predation trials with the skinks so there's four stages to the predation trials the first stage they basically they basically just put the lizard in this arena and then they put a bucket on it and then they introduced the model predator away from the lizard by about a meter and a half so they're in an arena with a bucket on them skinks just like okay and then they take the bucket off and what do you know there's a predator a meter and a half away how does the lizard react for 30 seconds then the second trial it's getting sort of like ramping up in intensity in frighteningness uh they move the predator 75 centimeters towards the lizard no bucket now at a constant speed yeah the, the, the skink is is completely free to roam this this little arena correct yeah um you know, they've controlled for other things like scent and things like that. So there's, they're, they're trying to minimise uh, confounding factors going on. Yeah. yeah. So the second one, they just move the fake predator towards the lizard at a constant speed. It's not too alarming. The third one, we're starting to get into freaking out the skinks territory now. They abruptly moved the predator closer. So the predator covered 50 centimeters in just one second to simulate a single attack. And then they left the predator immobile for two minutes. So this one, kind of confusing message for the skinks. The predator attacks and then goes immobile for a bit. And they wanted to see how that would cause them to react. And then four, the fourth trial, this one, the most intense they simulated what they call intensive attacks by repeatedly and rapidly presenting the predator to the lizard with no physical contact for 15 seconds so this is the one where they basically have the skink in the arena and then they have the uh, predator on some kind of weird metal prong contraption in this let's for example say it used the stuffed brown snake and then they basically just jab the brown snake at the lizard repeatedly and see what it does yeah <laughs> I mean, this this is their equivalent of sustained, sustained predation attempt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so what they wanted to do was look at how the lizards reacted to these different threats in terms of how much tongue flicking they're doing, how many tongue displays they're doing, where they stick the tongue out and stretch it right out and make it nice and blue, and other anti-predatory behavior, which you did mention earlier on briefly. They have like a suite of um, anti-predator sort of techniques. And um, one of those, well, and those are kind of, kind of those are hissing body inflation and what they call lateral presentation which is where the lizard turns side on to the predator to make it's it like, appear. look how huge i am exactly yeah. can't eat me <laughs> look at my bulk yeah um and yeah uh we've actually got some noise of the hissing if you'd like to hear it a little blue tongue skink hissing in conjunction with uh some tongue flashing I see a blue tongue skink. He's it's a little bit grumpy, but very grumpy yeah. looking. He's breathing quite quite heavily. Seems to be uh, in some sort of dog-like pose. <laughs> oh yeah, that hiss. They have such outrageous energy about them, don't they? I know, yeah. They just go from nothing to Wonderful. everything so fast. <laughs> the way it's just like slapping its tongue around as well. But yeah, that is the uh, extremely menacing hiss of a wild, rattled blue tongue skink. Yeah, I apologise for anybody who is now afraid and uh, not wanting to eat anything. A loss of appetite is only natural after hearing that. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's intended to do. So, yeah. And in these trials that we talked about, stage one and two, we can kind of stop talking about those because they didn't cause any tongue display. The skinks didn't care. Put a skink in the a bucket. Skinks, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's chilling. I And it's perfectly reasonable for the skinks to have done this because this whole, uh, what do they call it? Diamatic? Yeah, diamatic, diamatic display is about catching the, the predator off guard. You don't want to be trying to scare something that's that's half a meter away. That's not going to be very shocking. It's just going to see this. I mean, for one, it might not have even spotted the skink yet. Two, if it has spotted the skink and then it starts just flapping its tongue around, it's just going to get more attention to <laughs> yeah. from the predator. And it's 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 not going to be surprised. The predator's so far away, it's not going to be shocked. No, it's just going to see some weird chubby lizard over there flapping its tongue about. Yeah, there we go. Easy meal. This exactly. one doesn't know what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> this one's broken. Yeah, so. exactly. So that didn't elicit a response. However, um, stage three and stage four attacks did produce tongue displays with stage four attacks producing more than stage three. So obviously the intensity and that simulated repeated attack was enough for the skinks to start flashing their tongue and trying to confuse the predator right at the last moment and there were some uh, differences between how the skinks reacted to the various stimuli the skinks showed more tongue when they were presented with the bird the fox and the monitor lizard and the snake than they did for the control the big stick so the actual predators elicited a stronger reaction than the stick which suggests that at least in some cases blue tongue skinks can discern the difference between something which is going to eat them and a stick um, which is fair. Yeah, sorry, what were you saying the difference was in their tongue area? 
or uh, frequency of tongue displays? Right off the bat, I can say yes. <laughs> ah, yes. I mean, t- tongue area is there for sure. Yeah. The um the frequency of of full tongue displays, the snake is lower than the control. Is it not? With uh, uh, figure figure four is your shortcut to seeing that. You're quite right. Yep, the number of full tongue displays. So yeah, uh, yeah, I was talking about the uh, tongue area. Yeah, so that so they are making use of the full. It it, it it's sort of fox and snake get the most most shown of the tongue, and then monotelism and bird are less, but around equal amounts, mm. and then control further down again. But the bird and the fox had the tongue most frequently displayed to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By quite a margin. Yeah. Which suggests that the skinks are either more alarmed by these predators or they know that their tongue display works better on these predators, potentially. Right. It's interesting that there does seem to be different um, modes or, or setups. So bird, you get very frequent but less area fox you get very frequent but a lot of area monitor lizard you get quite less frequent and less area and then snake it's medium sort of area and not very frequent frequent Mm. um with control sitting lowest in area and nearly lowest in in frequency only only beating snake so it does seem like there is be that that you know the skink seeing what predators coming for it and and knowing that there is a different way you know maybe there's a more effective way of of spooking some predators than others that seems quite quite a reasonable uh conclusion to draw from that right yeah absolutely yeah they're differentiating between different predators yeah yeah so, I mean, the take-home, really, of this paper is that the tongues are blue because it makes it shocking for a predator to see. However, there is an interesting thing in their discussion about the fact that the the predators have a wavelength of light which they are best at seeing, right? Yeah, most most sensitive to. Yeah. I mean, for us, for us as a comparison, uh, we're most sensitive to green. Like, we're... In terms of colours, we're best at discerning different greens than we are anything else, I believe. Okay, that's cool. And so, yeah, all of these lizard predators have this same peak, but they have it elsewhere. And what the authors of this paper mention is that when animals have UV-sensitive photoreceptors, they have this absorbance peak of between 360 and 370 nanometers uh, for lizards and around 367, 367 nanometers for birds. However, the peak um, UV reflectance of the blue tongue skink's tongue is actually around 330 uh, nanometers. So there is actually, although they can see it and they can see it in this UV uh, wavelength and animals which have the ability to see UV can see it it isn't perfectly attuned it's not at their most sensitive region which if this had evolved solely for that purpose of startling the authors posit that you might expect that those two peaks would be in the same place uh, yes a better matchup a yes. better matchup yes. and so they suggest that maybe the blue color actually 
was around anyway because of the construction of the tongue. So the tongue histology might have it basically the tongue might contain collagen fibers which are useful for something else because they're strong mechanically and those happen to be blue and so the blueness of the tongue was then co-opted subsequently by the animal as a display threat after the fact it was already blue yes i mean it's it's one of these things again where you have uh probably some sort of evolutionary momentum or inertia whatever you want to call it and so things get a little bit co-opted and, and reused for different purposes because that's the path of least resistance. Um, which I think is a pretty convincing way of uh, interpreting that mismatch. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seems quite cool. I like I that I mean, idea. the other thing is perhaps different species previously had slightly different UV peaks I don't yeah. know how much variation there is in UV peaks among birds or, or, or mammals or anything along those lines. Yeah. But I would be surprised if it's super uniform. Yeah. They're saying that it's quite conserved in lizards at some point in this paper. Uh, yeah. But they're, they're saying that as a justification for using the predator models that they used because they used like a peafowl, which is a, an African bird, Um, pretty sure. Southeast Asian. Southeast Asian, isn't it? Yeah, peacock, you're right. Yeah, they're from... I saw one in Nepal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so they're using a bird which is from... I mean, a not completely distant place, but they're kind of... They're making the argument that these... No, but you also have... Features are quite Specifically peafowl, you have a lot of very prominent and and noticeable uh, sexual selection in terms of coloration and things along those lines, which isn't tied to... Uh, detecting prey and certainly you know birds of prey and stuff use a uv to pick up like mouse urine and stuff right and i can't imagine that the uv reflectance that might be playing into something like peafowl breeding is going to match up with like rodent urine it might Mm. it'd be kind of like you know it might i don't know how much flexibility there are in these systems but it would strike me as that is a potential difference there where uh, birds of prey UV sensitivity might be under, well, I would presume, heavily presume, that it is under different pressures to something like peafowl with that heavy uh, sexual selection aspect going on there. Yeah, yeah, and that's the point I'm trying to make. They used a peafowl. They didn't actually, because the models don't exist of the actual birds which are eating these lizards, they're just making assumptions. So, yeah. That you know, but the thing could... is, it's enough of a mismatch to be like, "Hey, we should discuss this." It's not enough of a mismatch to be like, "This isn't what's causing it." Yeah, it's just, "Hey, future, you know, future work. Get a different um, visual model to see and see if that still is a disparity." Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, on the subject of future research, one thing they're keen to do in the future is to see if it works the other way around. So, can you actually frighten? these predators with a model blue tongue skink whose tongue pops out. I mean, that'd be cool. That'd be... That's <laughs> <laughs> a little puppet skink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. That'd be... Yeah. yeah. All right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We'll, we'll cover that if that's done. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So from the blue tongue, we now know why their tongues are blue, right? I mean, that's pretty cool. Glad to find that out. It's not exactly a shock, but it's one of those ones where... And until you do it, you just don't know. So we know that they've got these blue tongues and they're using them as an anti-predator defense. And they're actually probably more aptly called 
ultraviolet tongued skinks than they are blue tongued skinks. But <laughs> yeah. what, what else U- can they ultra, do? Bl- ultra blue tongued skinks. Ultra blue tongued skinks. Yeah. <laughs> but what else can they do? Uh, do they have any smarts about them to go along with their clever anti-predator defense? So that takes us into our second paper, which is Sabo, Noble, Burn, Tate and Whiting. 2019, Precocial Juvenile Lizards Show Adult Level Learning and Behavioral Flexibility, published in Animal Behavior. Now, we're back to the precocial, altricial Hey, I, I came up with a thing to remember these. Go on. So precocial, yeah, it's like they're pre-cooked. They're ready to go out of the egg. They're ready to go immediately as being born. Whereas altricial, they need a little bit of help, potentially from someone called Al. Or from the albumen in the egg. <laughs> I, you see, that's, that's a bit confusing. That? Yeah, that's a bit confusing. <laughs> One thing I would say is that you said um, precocial. What did you say? They're, they're, they're pre-cooked. You could have just said they're pre- pre-cooked. Prepared. Yeah. They're prepared for life. Yeah, but then that doesn't play on the C-O in precocial. <laughs> I see. I get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. All right. And the difference is that precocial species don't rely on their parents for much, whereas altricial species, such as ourselves, um, I don't know about you, Ben, but when I was born, my ability to undertake complex reasoning and learning tasks was not what it is today. And I think the, we've. I think we can all agree that we've come quite far. Yeah, since birth. Whereas <laughs> for something like a skink, these precocial species, they don't have the opportunity to learn from their forebears because they're largely solitary. Abandoned. Yeah, the mothers don't want to know, which is fair. They give birth to their live young, and then they just slip right out, and so <laughs> slip right out. And the uh, <laughs> and the uh, God. They, yeah, once they're born, their mothers just chip, so they've got to look after themselves. And that is the kind of key defining factor of precocial species. So the lizards are born ready to roll. And the authors yeah. of this paper... Just just before you move there, there's certainly a... I've been chatting about this. It's sort of... It's not a black and white precocial altricial split. It's a continuum. There is certainly a gradient and depending on which sort of characteristic or behavior you care about most, I think there's some wriggle room for for saying how precocial or how altricial a certain species and and their, their juvenile rearing is. So, so what would be an example of an animal which is in the middle of the precocial altricial continuum? Well, the one, continuum? The one that comes to mind is, is something like crocodiles. Because you have this situation where they are coming out of the egg they're essentially ready to go. They have to feed themselves and they're, they're capable of swimming and climbing and whatever, but they are still looked after by a parent. So they're not entirely precocial, but they still have a lot of abilities that make them quite precocial. It, it's You see what I mean with there are mm. middle ground ones, I feel? They make that noise, don't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you wouldn't make little noises like that if you were entirely precocial. No, you're right. I mean, I can't believe how good that example was. So the people who study the cognitive abilities of animals, they have clever ways of determining what they call behavioral flexibility. And that is what they were trying to work out in this paper is, do the adults and the juveniles of blue tongue skinks have a similar ability 
to be flexible in their behavior. And if they do, that would be an indicator that they are, in fact, a precocial species. Yes, yes, they had two, two tests, didn't they? They did. Now, I would like to draw attention to one of the sentences in this, uh, into this introduction. Uh, <laughs> I I had the toughest time. I don't know if it's because I I have such little knowledge about neuroscience or something. Oh boy, where's this wonderful one? When testing set shifting, multiple discrimination stages are used to develop a preceptual attentional set, which is later challenged by a shift to a novel set, e.g., a second dimension. Mate, I guess, the, the amount honestly, of words I have no idea what was going. There were a few in here. With with after this discrimination is acquired, the reward reward contingencies change to one of the formerly non rewarded stimuli. Just, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. Like, I, it was a little bit of a, a a push to get through the intro. Yeah, because of my uh, lack of familiarity <laughs> with some of these terms, all of them being used in slightly different ways to what I'm used to. Mm. You know, even it's like the, dimension what's a dimension okay it's it's one of these but it's in this context it's something totally different i actually found that the best way for me to understand this paper was to abandon all their jargon and just go to the original Straight paper to- where they got their methods from and just read ah. it and understand the steps because when they started talking about extra dimensions and interdimensions i was yep. like look I'm existing in this plane, right? We all are. I don't want to hear about extra dimensions. I want to hear... <laughs> I'm already having enough difficulties dealing with three, possibly four dimensions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm crashing into things. I don't yeah. need to hear about it. And so, yeah, I just kind of... The way I understood it, it was to like write down the things in steps that they did and appreciate what the right. lizards had done from one and, step to the and other. And to be fair, they do a really nice job describing... So although the, the terms at the beginning in the intro are a little bit, uh, frightening difficult to get through when you get to the methods and they're actually detailing what they're doing or what these extra dimensionals consist of oh right okay yeah mm. and they've got some very nice figures that lay it out and it all becomes clear yeah but that those first few paragraphs i was like oh no what have i got myself into this yeah. <laughs> this is too much yeah totally um so i might try and walk you through the experiment as it yep. Could you, to could you walk me through as if I was a skink? I would love to, yeah. So yeah. picture this, so I'm, Ben. I'm going I'm to pitch myself as a skink. Maybe I'm shut your eyes. I'm ground and I'm quite angry. Shut your eyes so you can't see your own mm-hmm. disgusting scaleless skin. So mm-hmm. picture this. You're presented with a card with a triangle on it and a card with a cross on mm-hmm. it. Each yep. of these cards has a bowl beneath it, right? When mm. you approach the bowl beneath the triangle card, you smell food, but you can't get it. You can't get the food. You can just smell the food. But when you approach Curses. Yeah, when you approach the cross card, there's a delicious dollop of cat food. <gasps> cat food? I love yeah. cat food. You greedily consume it. Mm. You now know that the cross card is good because you can get cat food there, which you like. Excellent. Excellent. And you play this game until you go to the correct cat food six times in a row. So until you approach the triangle six times. Sorry, the cross. When you approach the cross six times in a row, you've won. You've won. Now, once you've learnt that, the situation seems to change. So you're bumping into the cross card in a bowl there, but it's no longer got food. So after a time, you think, I'll try the triangle. Ah, there's food at the triangle that you can can actually get. So you learn to approach the triangle card. Congratulations, you've demonstrated reversal learning and you're capable of behavioural flexibility. Oh, 
Yes. <laughs> However, again, the situation seems to change. Ah, oh, they torment me. Yes, but they take it further. There's more to this experiment, right? So they add another dimension, okay? Now, this might confuse you, Ben, so follow closely. Right. The cross card uh-huh. and the triangle card are still uh-huh. there. And yep. we're still at a place where the triangle means food. However, now the cards are different shades of blue, right? One's a light blue, one's a dark blue. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go to the light blue cross or the dark blue triangle? I'm going to stick with triangle. It's done me good recently. It's the last one that that produced cat food for me. I believe that the triangle <laughs> is still good. Bang it, mate. You smashed it. So the triangle is still good. You did well to ignore the now irrelevant color dimension, which was added in. Big up. That's that's great work. <laughs> but next, next, there's two new shapes. Okay, so instead of a cross and a triangle, you've now got a square and a circle. And the irrelevant colors are still there in the background. And you've now got to work out which means food, circle or square. Well, that's just going to have to be, be trial and error, right? Trial and error. Okay. Presuming so let's that say... one, one shape rather than the other shape is, is directing me to the delicious cat food bounty. It is. It is. And it's the square. And ah, you learn that. You learn that. Good old square. And so now you're there, you've learned there's a new shape, the irrelevant colours are still in the background, you're ignoring those, and you're going to the square, because the square means food. You've got that. But now the situation changes again, and this oh. time, it's actually the colour of the background and not the shapes which determine where the food is. So you've got to now adapt to looking for the colour, which has up to now been considered irrelevant, to find out which bowl has the food. And then finally, they do it reversed. So the other color means food. And what they're looking to see is, can these skinks adapt to these changing circumstances, reverse the learning? And essentially what they're trying to demonstrate is that the skinks can demonstrate inhibitory control, right? So if you imagine seeing a square, it's very ingrained in your mind that that means food by this point, right? Mm -hmm. The ability... The ability upon finding out that the square doesn't have food to stop smashing your face into the square is reversal learning. And that is what they're trying to, trying to <laughs> demonstrate in these things. That's what we call intelligence. That's what we call intelligence. Yeah. And so, yeah, they did this with a whole bunch of skinks and they do the experiments until, as I said, they get them right six times in a row. And they were looking to see whether or not the adults or the juveniles were faster at learning these differences through the trials and f- basically following yeah. and keeping up with where the food was. So the, the sort of tying that back to the precocial thing, the idea is that if they are precocial they should essentially have the same behavioral flexibility and capabilities as the adults they shouldn't need to learn and develop these things they should be ready to go okay as smart as the adults and yeah yeah and the good thing that they found was that they were juveniles showed the same level of flexibility as the adults and the skinks were able to distinguish between multiple pairs of shapes and colors and the suggestion is that as you've just said these are Precocial creatures capable of negotiating and learning it, complex problems. Right. Well, capable, certain individuals being capable. I That's think a it good is point. worth highlighting the level of, what do they call them? Non-learners? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they call them there non-learners. There was a lot of, a lot of uh, skinks that flunked out. They, yeah. they couldn't get it. They couldn't get them frequently, you know, couldn't get them right enough times in a row and had to be 
politely asked to leave. Threw him on the dum dum so, pile, didn't they? You know, some of the more advanced ones you were talking about with the, the switching of colours and things, at the end of the day, I think they got whittled it down to seven skinks that made it all the way to the end. Uh, five adults, two juveniles. But that being said, they had, you know, it is a succession of trials. So they have, you know, larger sample cells going back. I can't remember how many they started with. 30, 30 animals, I believe? 30 they started with, yeah. And yeah. like you said, seven made it all the way to the end. 23 gave up as time went on. And so they weren't able to compare the entire suite of adults and juveniles learning for the latter stages of the trials because yeah. animals dropped out. That being said, you know, they still... The sample sizes are pretty pretty good uh, considering, but it only sort of drops off at the end. And these are quite complicated tasks. So it's it's... It's pretty, you know. I don't, I don't think the skink should feel bad. I mean, no. I'm saying. no. No. Just so long as they don't. It's not quite equatable to their lives in the wild, is it? But it is evidence. It's kind of cool in of itself because it shows that not all skinks are born equal in terms of their ability to learn reversal tasks. Yeah, I mean that 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 makes sense. There's always going to be individual sort of variation, heterogeneity, whatever you'd like to call it. Hmm. Um, I think the other thing they were drawing attention to was perhaps there was a lack of motivation <laughs> on the skinks' part. Not be that that because you know maybe maybe cat food wasn't the nicest food. Maybe they didn't want cat food. But uh, the the point is that there are one of the tricks. I think certainly with reptiles, this is why you, you see less uh, studies with snakes and things. You do need animals that are motivated to participate in your trials. Often yeah. you're using food as the motivator. But that isn't always going to be perfect. And as the tasks get more complicated, you're going to get animals that are don't care enough to try. <laughs> you know, it might not be a cognitive thing. It might not be them not being smart enough to do it. It might be you're not giving them a good enough reason to. Yeah. So there's all sorts of aspects that, that, that play into this. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there were lizards that were simple. No. No. Yeah. We have the same thing. There's an undergraduate practical here at Bangor where they are observing the different locomotory strategies by different lizards. And right. you, put, you put a leopard gecko in a maze with no reason for it to go anywhere and it won't go anywhere. No way. They're just not interested. Plus, I mean, they are also nocturnal and the experiment is going on in a daytime <laughs> setting. So they're basically just like, can you leave me alone? <laughs> but it, it, it's that sort it's of thing. thing. I mean, it, it exactly. It all it all plays in. It's it's That's yeah. why we we tend to harp on about these studies when they are done in the wild because there are so many other things you have to take into account in 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 those scenarios and it takes quite a clever experimental design to sort of get around it mm. while actually getting the results you think you're going to be getting so regardless cool study showing that that precocial juvenile lizard as being as good as the adults well done mm. little guys yeah, I'm proud of them. They should they should be proud of themselves. Yeah, no, they did well. It's a really cool paper. And uh, yeah, I think that just about summarises our time on blue tongue skinks, doesn't it? You got anything else to add about these ultraviolet tongue skinks? Uh, no, I just accidentally scrolled to the bottom of the paper and realised they have 10 supplementary tables, which I 
didn't realize before holy smokes i clicked on their uh, open data link oh that yes i was going to say well done for having open data i thought i'd remind you because yeah you hadn't said it yeah i clicked on it and i was like oh ben will like this yeah i ex- yeah good <laughs> i like it too i like it too. it's I great like it. thank yeah. you yeah <laughs> and all the good morphometrics so, with all their skinks and all sorts there's some there's some nice reporting in this yeah so yeah, thanks to Hedrigal for that suggestion. Great yeah, blue tongue skinks. Yeah. Yeah, and they're doing stuff and they're capable of learning, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, the other that's the other bit to add is I do like the uh studies on reptile brain stuff. Yeah, me showing too. Showing that they're not just getting away from that that classical stupid reptile cold blooded Thing, you know, big lumbering old school dinosaur way of thinking about reptiles. Yeah, yeah. You know, they can be smart when they want to. Yeah, it's all contextual, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's not until you give them flashcards with different colours and shapes that they really come into their own. <laughs> right, but if they're unmotivated, then those flashcards mean nothing. True that. Right, so let's move on to our species of the bi week. Yeah. We have got Vanderdoys, Hoskin, Cut, Wright, and Zosia. 2020, Beauty in the Eye of the Beholder, a new species of gecko from inland North Queensland, Australia, published in Zootaxa. And we are travelling now. We're still in Australia, which is why this was picked as the species of the bi-week, because we're talking about an Australian skink. We thought we don't want to stray too far, so we'll stick with an Australian lizard, albeit not a skink. We're not in the family skinkaday here. We're transplanting ourselves to a different family famed for its sticky feet and that is Gekonidae yeah <laughs> yeah so this species we are in the Inesley Uplands bioregion of central north Queensland Australia which is a tropical savanna and they make some cool points actually in this introduction of his paper talking about the habitat that this study is taking place in and mm-hmm. what they say is that essentially these rocky ranges and sort of residual rocky outcrops within australia's tropical savannas equate more or less to islands of habitat in a sea ah. of open savanna so now although that, they're not sky sounds... islands yeah exactly that's, they're like what, miniature, that's where mine was going they're like miniature rock islands and these rock yeah. islands can be hotbeds of um adaptation and radiation among reptiles because these are animals you know you imagine a tiny gecko if a tiny gecko finds itself in a rocky outcrop and there's a long way between the next habitable rocky outcrop it's feasible that they might end up becoming isolated and then radiating and becoming a species and they're saying that these rock islands are in fact um very similar to the sky islands that we've talked about in africa so so basically a perfect setup for micro endonism Precisely. Mm -hmm. And this is a species of Lucasium, which are species that generally shelter by day. These little geckos, they shelter under logs or rocks. And at nighttime, they come out to forage for boogs. They like eating insects in leaf litter and over rocky and also bare areas. So they're kind of nocturnal, uh, nocturnal bug hunters. Yeah. And yeah, they described... It is a good life. It's, you know, it's an honest life, um, simple life, but a good life. And they've described this new species and they're calling it Lucasium 
Iris. The Gilbert Ground Gecko, or Gilbert the Ground Gecko. Gilbert the Ground Gecko? <laughs> and yeah, the name's pretty sweet. We like the name, don't we? The specific epithet Iris is in reference to the goddess Iris, who may be familiar to some of our listeners who are interested in classics because she's from Greek mythology, the goddess of the rainbow, who is known for being very beautiful. And the association with this gecko is that it's a beautiful gecko. That's literally all it needs to be. And the name is a noun in apposition standard. And informally, they say that Iris as the species epithet is also a reference to the fact that this lizard has a very beautiful Iris, which it really does. I I do appreciate the double meaning there. Um, the Greek mythology connection is a little bit odd, but hey, you know, it's, it, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, the common name Gilbert Ground Gecko is chosen because it's in the Gilbert Range and it's near the Gilbert River and the Gilberton Station is where it occurs. And it's known from rocky hills in a localised area of this Gregory Range, very restricted range, um, and individuals, much like other species in the genus, have been encountered foraging on the ground at night, and some of them have actually been seen sitting in the entrance of a narrow burrow with just their little head poking out, waiting. Oh, adorable, with these, these beautiful eyes. So we're talking about a, a gecko which is around 60 millimetres SVL. Um, so it's pretty, actually not tiny. Small. Yeah, but... It, I guess well, for they they describe it as large in the paper, don't they? So they're obviously accustomed to much smaller geckos. I mean, I think I'm reading this correctly. That wasn't sixty centimeters I was reading. It was oh no 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 no! It's yeah, it's sixty mil, but they still refer to it as large. Yeah, I mean, six centimeters is. I mean, the tail length is an additional four, so we are talking ten overall. Yeah. Um, and to be honest, sixty is a bit. Of, 60 is generous, so their mean is 55. Yeah. 54. So. I'm looking at their um, distinctions between species, and the way they distinguish them from pretty much every other species in the genus is by their larger size. So. Ah. It must just be big for the genus. Well, there we go. I mean, what is small? Small is something yeah. relative to something something larger, or large is, you know, vice versa. Yeah. They're comparing Whatever. it to like 15 yeah. species in the paper, and about 12 of them it mentions their larger size. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yeah. And should we talk about what this little critter looks like? It looks yeah, very... Yeah, yeah. One it's... thing I notice is it looks very smooth. It does look very smooth. Now, whether it is very smooth, I don't know. It looks soft. I don't know what it would be. It looks like velvety. velvety almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's so kind of a light brown gecko with a tan stripe down its back. The tan stripe also covers its head. Um... I'm just trying to think of species people might be familiar with. Uh, I, I mean, guess there's something a little bit gargoyle gecko-y maybe about this lizard. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could work. Um, White tummy. Yes, lovely pale counter shading going on there. Yep, yep. And then the tail's got a little bit of patterning on it. The, the, the stripe on the back turns into sort of more rough splotched stripe as it heads down the tail. Yeah. And this eye. This eye. It is ooh, like a pale bluey green. Very, very pale. Uh with that wonderful I mean you see in a few gecko species, that sort of cracked glass. There is a pottery glazing technique which produces something very similar and I 
I've forgotten the name of it. Begs the question, why mention it? <laughs> no, Jay. It really does, doesn't it? Because <laughs> we've just got a dead end. What is it? I've, I've, That's, I'm is familiar it a with this. Japanese technique. Well, they use super, super high temperatures. Can you? Temperature. Raku where? Raku. Yeah. That's it, Raku. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. If you're familiar with Raku pottery, then that's what I'm thinking of. Is that where they put gold leaf in the cracks? I think you can. I think that's. I don't think that's a necessity for Raku. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, yeah. But I think Raku can produce things like that because of the high temperatures it's done at. Next week on Pottery World. <laughs> so yeah, we've got um, is this yeah nice little new species, and I can see what you're saying about the eye. It is very reminiscent of that cracked pottery, um, yeah. and extremely beautiful, and uh, very easy justification of a excellent name for which the authors should be commended. I also really like how uh, was it figure four. The picture of the gecko, it's got this such such an adorable little smile. Ah, uh, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. So it's got a really, really cute gecko face. Almost um, a little bit day gecko in, in shape, I would say. Very similar, yeah. Yeah, that cute, cute gecko face. Very good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Excellent addition. So we're talking about Lucasium iris. Gilbert the ground gecko. Gilbert the ground gecko. <laughs> so... Any other business? Because I think that's it, isn't it? That's our species of the bye week. No business of any type from me. Okay, I've just got a couple of bits. Um, we got a couple of new Patreons to shout out. So Christopher, Ooh. howdy, and thank you very much. And also yeah, thank you. Cody Moon. Thank you thank very you, much. Thank you. We had a great email from Ethan. And this is Ethan Royal. And he said... I'm sure y'all, loving the y'alls, have already gotten an earful. I don't even know how to say y'all. Y'all? Sure, y'all have already gotten an earful on this, but I just wanted to chime in about gopher tortoise burrow excavation. So yes! We, we were talking about gopher tortoises episode before last? Yeah, it was the yeah, one before the rain Yeah, something like that. The mighty, mighty mole rats. But I don't. I want to chime in about gopher tortoise burrow excavation after it was mentioned in the last show. While they don't run nearly as long as the mole rat burrows y'all covered, gopher tortoises do dig their own and typically maintain multiple burrows at once that are spread across their home ranges. There we go. They're also there used go. by a bunch of different species, including eastern diamondbacks and the majestic yep. gopher frog, with some species further modifying the burrows for their own use. It goes on to say, I worked as a field tech on a long-term gopher tortoise project for a bit, and walking and walking up to find one, digging a new burrow or doing some burrow maintenance and throwing sand everywhere is always a treat. That is That's awesome. Really cool. So they are the ecosystem engineers. They're not coming in and just improving a burrow ready-made that was maybe what we were considering. And I think isn't there isn't there a, a paper chatting about uh, python encroachment north in Florida and the potential for them to exploit python burrows as a way of avoiding the cold? Gopher burrows, gopher tortoise burrows, yeah. Gopher tortoise burrows, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I seem to, that does ring a bell, yeah. And that was when they were doing the paper, that was the paper where they left all the Burmese pythons outside and they all died. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, that's, that's good, that's good, that's what we wanted, for that, that yeah. confirmation. Yeah, 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 Perfect. so they, they are diggers, they're big time diggers. Uh, he also said, Ben, I really enjoyed your DBBMM paper from last year, very cool stuff. Excellent, well. Yeah. 
Watch your space, more coming. Dubbumumas. Yeah, I'm going to be using some dubbumumas on uh, Escalation Snakes, hopefully. That's all coming together. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it, I think, for this episode. Unless you've got anything else to add. I think all that no, remains to be said. Thank you, as ever, to all our patrons. It's massively appreciated. And it is, yes. Yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herphighlights at gmail.com or we're on Facebook or Twitter. We're on both of those. So, yeah, thank you for listening. Awesome. Thank you for listening.